Our guest speaker, Rabbi Jonathan Rietti, is the senior lecturer at Gateway Seminar, which is involved in the Harbatzas Torah on a very, very large scale. Also serves as the principal of the Yeshiva Shari Simcha in Passaic. He's a resident of uh, Muncie, one of the most uh, dynamic and sought-after lecturers today in the Jewish world. It's Bechavot Gadol that I present Rabbi Jonathan Rietti to speak on the topic of the science of simplicity in a high-tech, complex world. Rabbi Rietti. Thank you. Good evening. Thank you very much, Rabbi Bizansky, Rabbi Ashra, for your kind words. And thank you as well to Rabbi Wolkenfeld for inviting me to share with you this evening on the subject of simplicity, the science of simplicity. Let's see if I can tie it into the, the difficult subject that we've just been introduced to. The word science as an observation of facts, oh, sorry, is this okay? The, the idea of science being the observation of elements within creation, patterns within nature, that when we can identify the laws that science, so to speak, observes, then we can know that if those laws are obeyed, then there's going to be a result which we can predict. So in that sense, the choice of the title, The Science of Simplicity, I don't want to get distracting to myself. The Science of Simplicity suggests that there are laws in the idea of being simple, and that when we obey those laws, there's a predictable result. Now the word simplicity in English, I think, has many connotations which for the most part, are negative. Associations that are not looked upon as complementary. In fact, if we look for the word in Hebrew for simplicity or simple, which word would we probably come up with? Pashut, kal, tam. The word in Hebrew for someone who, in English we translated or mistranslated it as simple, the word is tam. Now, the biggest difference between Lashon HaKadosh, Biblical Hebrew, and any other language, is Lashon HaKadosh created the universe. It was a conduit between Hashem's Rotson, the desire of God to create the universe, and then the actual manifestation of physical reality. What took place in between? Words, speech. Which speech? Lashon HaKadosh. So, in this sense, Biblical Hebrew, when God chose a word, if we're going to look for a translation, we have to first identify the original intent behind the word, and then look for the closest word or words in English, or any other language, that reflects the original intent. So if we look carefully at the word tam, you're right, unfortunately it has been translated as simple, naive, Carl, light, in the sense of not being deep. But when we look more deeply, we're going to discover there's a real science to simplicity. And no less 
than the third and arguably the greatest of the three patriarchs, the one that was able to synthesize, balance, so to speak, the chesed of his grandfather Avraham with the gvura, the kindness and the strictness, if you like, of his father Yitzhak, Yaakov. Yaakov Avinu was the one that was Zoycha, he was the one that merited to bring in the twelve tribes that founded the Jewish people, the chosen nation. And so we have to look more carefully when the Torah, God's words, described Yaakov, Jacob, as Ishtam. A man that is simple. <laughs> we can't possibly apply the connotations and associations that we are used to in the English language to the patriarch, this towering personality. So, let's try and understand what do we mean by the science of simplicity, especially in contrast to the unique generation that we live in, with the fast pace of life, the multiple roles, multiple tasking that we're used to and some would claim is a criteria for a successful person in life, how much they can multitask simultaneously, do more than one thing. And we put this all together, I hope we'll be able to cut away from some of the confusion and create some more clarity as to what it means to be a tongue. So I'm going to ask you a question. How many time zones are there? Not the international zones, but how many time zones are there? Any suggestions? Still recovering from Shabbos' challenge? 18. 18? Well, you've got the past, the present, and the future. Yeah? There are three time zones. There are t- three times in which we exist. Is that correct? Now, consider the following. Which one of these three is the most relevant on a day-to-day, moment-to-moment, hour-to-hour, year-to-year basis? The present. You agree? Why? The past never exists. Think about it. Does the past ever exist? No, it never really exists. Because as soon as it's happened, it's the past. The future, does that ever exist? Think about it. The future never exists. Because it hasn't happened yet. The only time zone a human being exists in is the now. You know, there's a cute expression. I don't know the origin of it. The past is history. The future is a mystery. And the now is the present. That's why it's a gift. It's supposed to be a pun, never mind. That's why it's called the present. The, the now is the only moment that we live in. It's the gift of life in the moment. Which means the following. If this is really true, I'm not trying to get too philosophical here, if the past never really exists, because it's always happened, the moment it happened already, it's a moment ago, an hour ago, a day ago, and the future never exists because it hasn't happened yet and never will, and the only moment I ever live in is the now, then if my mind is worrying about the future in a way that's not really preparing me for the future, or if my mind is analyzing the past in a way that doesn't draw lessons from the past to propel me forward and help me gain clarity as to who I am, the lessons I have to learn from in relationships with my spouse, my children, my friends, my boss, my career choices, if my mind is either in the past or in the future, 
Am I, in a certain sense, actually alive right now? In a certain sense, I'm not existing. Because my mind, which is the major part of us, is either in the past or in the future. So if I'm not really focusing on the now, I'm losing out on the amount of time I really live, exist. I'm not, I hope I'm not getting too philosophical over here. But I'm trying to build a case for what Tamimut simplicity really means. A human being, amongst other labels, God gave us the label Baal Bahira, a master of choice. That a human being makes choices. And every single waking moment, the mind is working, we are making choices of what to focus on. To focus on the past, the present, the future. And we're even called partners with God, that He's the one that created the universe, but he left it for us to make choices as to how we shape the world, society, mankind. I would even go so far to say the following. Are we defined by the choices we made yesterday? Think about it. Are we defined about, by the choices we will make? Or are we mostly defined by the choices we make in every single waking moment, on a daily basis? The moment we live in is the only moment we exist in. The past doesn't exist, the future doesn't exist. If my mind is on where I'm going to be after the lecture, how much shall I give? Um, I wonder how the kids are. Oh my gosh, I didn't turn the phone off and it's vibrating. If my mind is on other things other than what I came for in the moment, then in a certain way, my body is in one place, my mind is somewhere else. If my mind is at work, my body is at work, but my mind is distracted by the slight, sharp exchange of words I had with my spouse before I got to work this morning, where is my mind? Is my mind at work or is it at home? If I get home and my body is there, but my mind is on the business and the strawberry, not strawberry, what was it called? Blackberry, thank you. On the Blackberry and all the emails I haven't yet attended to, and my mind is on all the voicemails I haven't got to, the emails on the computer, and oh my gosh, did you see the mail that came in today? How I'm behind on certain bills and have returned response to this person. If my body is at home, and my mind is not with the family, where am I? Am I where my body is? I pick up the phone. And after I've got through my part of the business, and now it gets to small talk, and I start looking at the papers in front of me on the desk, the screen in front of me, can you tell that the person isn't really there with you on the phone anymore? That you sense that their mind is somewhere else, even though they're saying, yes, mm-hmm, okay, right, mm-hmm, right, right. And somehow you know, even if you're thousands of miles away, they're not there. But they are there, but they're not there. See, the science of simplicity is a focus of living in the now. A congruency between the mind and the body. Perhaps even other parts to us. The mind and the emotions. And the senses. My suggestion is that a human being is not defined by our past choices, even though they can still affect us. 
we are defined more by the moment-to-moment choices we make. Let me share with you a very powerful example of how far-reaching this idea goes. That a human being is defined by the choices we make in a second, from one moment to the next. The Talmud in Kedushin, page 29, a very famous Gemara, shares the following description of someone that you know has a track record of being a Rasha. Wicked! I'm going to paint the scenario, embellish it somewhat, but this is basically the, the idea that the Gemara is trying to convey. You know for a fact that this person was eating a ham cheese sandwich on Yom Kippur just a few minutes ago. And right after davening, you attend a, win- uh, a wedding. And it turns out that this same person that you saw a few minutes ago is the Khatan. He is the groom standing underneath the chuppah. And there he places the ring on his bride's finger and he says, Hari at mikudeshatli, behold, you are betrothed to me, almanat, on condition, she'anit sadikamur, that I'm a completely righteous individual. And you're coughing, almost choking to death, trying to get the words out that before she agrees and puts the ring on you want to say something, what's the halacha? What's the law in this case? You have people who know for a fact he has a track record of being a wicked person. And now he's making the betrothal conditional on him being a completely righteous individual. Not just any righteous, completely righteous. Sadiq Gamur. What's the halachic ruling? What's the legal ruling over here? Any suggestions? Who remembers the Gemara? Safik Kedushin. We say that we're not certain whether or not the wedding is valid. And because it's a possibility that he means what he says, if they get into an unresolved difference and he wants to divorce her, it requires a get. Because we're taking the position that it's quite possible he meant what he said. And in that moment, because he meant it, He's considered a tzaddik gamur. Even if he can't keep up with it afterwards, in that moment he was. The betrothal is valid. The wedding is valid. And now if they ever part ways, he will be required to give a get. That's how far reaching it goes. But even beyond that, in the laws of Shabbos, if God forbid someone falls under a brick, a pile of bricks from a fallen wall, let's just imagine this following scenario. If you were to know 100%, 100%, scientifically, it would be rigged up so that you would know that by saving this person's life, by removing the bricks, violating the Sabbath, you would save his life for one second. That's all you will save his life for. Are you permitted to violate the Sabbath if you were to know that he's only going to live for one more second? Yes. Are you permitted to violate all 39 malachas, all 39 Activities that are forbidden on the Sabbath. Yes or no? Even to save his life for one second? Absolutely. Now we'll take it to an even more extreme. For pikuach nefesh, for the saving of life, how many mitzvahs, averas, how many violations of the Torah is a person allowed to violate? Out of 613 mitzvahs, are you permitted to violate 610? That's right. There are only three averas that I'm not allowed to do 
in the name of saving a person's life. Adultery, idolatry, and murder. Bar those three, I have an obligation, an obligation, a mitzvah, to violate 610 mitzvahs to save a person's life for one second. Why? Why? What's the message? Because in one second, a human being can make a different choice, a different commitment, that as far as God's reality is concerned, made this person's whole life worthwhile, justified, for that one moment. What I'm trying to establish here is really the following. To be or not to be, in the now, is the question. Where my mind is, is where I am. The Baal Shem Tov used to say that, it's famously quoted. If my body is in Shemona Esrei and my mind is on Miami Beach, my mind is not in the words, I'm davening but I'm not really davening. And my intellect and emotions, my entire body knows that I have, instead of Shalom, which is the fusion of separate parts coming together, we'll talk about that in a few moments, I have what's called Pizur HaNefesh. My mind is distracted, split up in different parts. If my mind is on the marriage while I'm at the Daf Yomishir, where am I? I'm not really there. If my mind is not fully focused when I'm doing homework with my kid, where am I? Will my kid really pick up on it? When I'm having a conversation with my spouse and he or she is distracted, and inchy about getting on to whatever their next part of their schedule is, will I feel it? Will my spouse feel it that I'm not really there? If my body's there, did you hear what I just said? I can repeat every word you said. Then why, why is she asking me, did I hear everything she said? Because she sees and senses that my mind is really not engaged. I'm partially there, but not completely there. Even when I relax for myself, if I spend that time filling my mind with anxiety about my problems, my issues, the future, the family, is it possible I could be sabotaging my own relaxing time, even when I need to go to sleep for my own sake, or relax on the beach, and now what pours into my mind? The thoughts of how good it is to relax, or my concerns, my anxieties, my worries, I need to make a choice to live in the moment and be congruent with the environment that I'm in. If I'm at work, that's where my mind and body belongs. If I'm at home, that's where my mind and body belongs. With the children, homework, playing ping pong, that's where I belong. If I'm supposed to be on a project, that's where my focus belongs. I don't think there's a self-help book ever sold that doesn't in some way, emphasize the importance of focusing like a laser beam on anything that we're involved with and that the success of many an individual is based upon the fact that they've made a conscientious choice to be in the now, whatever it is that they're involved with. I'll give you a ridiculous scenario. Driving on the highway with the cell phone in my left hand, cup of coffee in my right hand, elbow changing the channels, and my left knee 
moving the steering wheel. Now, I know no one in this room can relate to this, but some of your friends will know what I'm talking about. Is it possible that when my mind and body and my soul, emotions, are not congruent, that I'm not only placing myself in a situation where I'm not really focusing on any one item fully, is it possible that if I practice that enough and get away with it enough times, that I could, God forbid, put myself in a moment of incredible danger? I'll never forget, about four years ago, I met Christopher Reed. He was wheeled onto a platform, and amongst other things in his speech, he described the moment that he fell from his horse. He said, before the race began, he knew there was one particular hurdle that was difficult. And the hurdle that he fell, that wasn't the one. But he said, I know the reason why I fell is because my mind was on the next hurdle, which I knew was the difficult one. And he said, in that moment, I sensed that the horse and its rider were not together. And it's in that moment, my horse went one way, and my mind, with its body, went in a different direction. And he says, I'm almost quoting verbatim, and if it's not the exact words, this is the exact message he said. I recall that as I was falling, my mind was saying to myself, it's not too late. I'll break my fall, jump back on the horse, and I can still make excellent timing for this race. And he said, because I was focusing on what I was going to do, instead of what I was involved in doing, I fell in an awkward position, in such a way that his head and neck hit the ground, and left him a quadriplegic for the rest of the few years of his life. Christopher Reeve, Superman, was saying that because I wasn't living in the moment, it cost me the rest of my body. Let's look at Lashon HaKadosh and see if we can start to break down the science of simplicity. A term, Tamimut. Simplicity is translated to Mimut. The word term usually is translated as naive or simple, shallow. These are not very complimentary terms. But when we look at Jacob, Yaakov Avinu, chapter 25 in Genesis, as described as Ishtam, now we have to look at it with a much more investigation. What does a term mean that the greatest, one can argue, of the three patriarchs, in the sense that he was the one that started the nation, he was called an Ishtam. What does it mean to be an Ishtam? So Unculus, the Targum, which is according to the Talmud in Megillah, page 6, is part of the Masorah from Sinai. The Targum says, Ishtam, the translation there, is Gver Shalem, a complete person. Complete means there have to be parts that are coming together. Do you agree? Complete means there are parts that when they come together, create the completion. So here we have a Gever, a person, which... It's synonymous to Gevura, Gibor, someone in control of themselves, Ezehu Gibor, who is the powerful person, the one who controls himself. So now we're referring to someone who's in control of himself and is Shalim, complete. Rashi fills in a few more 
clues, and now we can put it together. Rashi says, the meaning of Ishtam is Kalibai Ken Piv. What's going on in his heart, in his mind, Ken Piv, that's what comes out of his mouth. A person that is a complete person, in this sense, Ishtam, simplicity means exactly that. He's simply focused in a way that he's congruent. His face, his tonality, his choice of words, his body language, what's going on in his mind, in his heart, the words that come out of his mouth, they're consistent. It's the same message. So if you ask me, I'm a guest in your home, would I like another piece of cheesecake? And I say, um, no thank you. What do you hear? Besides the hesitation. Do you hear that no thank you is a really resounding no? Or do you hear that I really would love one more? And, and, and I'm just afraid, do you hear that I'm not congruent in my probably facial language, body language, tonality? Even though the choice of words technically says no thank you. That's very clear. But my tonality, my body language is so not congruent, consistent with the way I'm saying it, that you pick up a totally different message. And when I speak without sincerity, that's what we're talking about. That I'm not being real to myself and I'm not being real to others. Yaakov Avinu, Jacob was called an Ishtam because, because he was consistent in every facet of his life. In every encounter with his wives, with his children, with other people, he was exactly who you saw him to be. There was a total consistency between the mind, the heart, the mouth, the choice of words, the tonality, the body language. That is what we're talking about. The science of simplicity is very powerful. When a parent says no to their child, I said no! How many times do I have to say no? Don't you know what no means? N-O? One, one second, if I'm saying it ten times, what is it about the first no that my kid knew that the no was negotiable? How come they came back ten times? Why? Oh, I've got a track record that if they push me enough, cajole me enough, the no turns to, okay, have it already, leave me alone. And suddenly, it's clear to my child that no means no until I'm pushed over the edge. But it's not a real no. How many times do I act not congruently in the career place with my in-laws, with my spouse, with my, sometimes my own children? The science of simplicity is for me to be aware of when I'm not being congruent. If I am choosing to be out of congruency, I'm still in control. That can still be under the title Ish Shalem. A person that is complete. Because they are still being honest to themselves at least. And there's a reason why they are giving a different facade. As with Jacob in his dealings with Lavan. He had to deviate with Esau. And that was not inconsistent. Even though he was already called an Ishtam in chapter 25. And it's in 27, assuming that chronologically it's correct. In this case it is. Chapter 27 is where he cheats, so to speak, his brother. And it's only in chapter 28 and 29 where he gets to live with Lavan. He's already been called an Ishtam. To me, what doesn't mean that I'm never 
inconsistent. But it does mean that if a person is a tam consistently, then when they're inconsistent, they know they are. My father, who's an actor, once shared with me a very powerful line. He said, most people act most of the time. But the greatest actor is the one who knows when he's acting. It's really true. Because even actors in real life, they do such a convincing job that if you meet them in real life, how do you think you're going to respond to them? Do you think you'll be natural, spontaneous with them? Or you'll get all, oh my gosh, that's Elizabeth Taylor sitting there. Oh my gosh, Mr. President, look at you know, And then you go up to them and tell them all about the movies you've watched. And how do you think they respond to you? Do you think they're their real selves? No. You know, Larry Hangman, Harry, Harry Langman, no, Larry Hangman. Larry Hangman, who starred in JR, no one saw this, it was on Friday night 20 years ago, but Larry Hangman, he did such a good job of being a lowlife, in and out of affairs, a bad mouther, twisted, con man, liar, cheat. He was so convincing that in real life he would receive hate mail. Seriously. People, he would interview, he said, people pass me in the streets and spit on the floor in front of me. Serious. Do you realize how confusing it is? Because much of the time, I'm not the real me. But if at least I know I'm acting, then a person can get away with it. My father once told me that the acting profession is probably the only profession in world history where actors and actresses get so many accolades and recognition and acknowledgement for who they are. Not. Think about it. They get so much recognition for who they are not. Amazing. That's the danger of being an actor and actress and not being able to distinguish on stage and off stage. Do you think that happens? All the time. Going a little bit deeper into this, What happens, we have a, another verse which talks about Tamimut. It's in chapter 18, verse 13 of Deuteronomy, where the Torah tells us, Tamim in Hashem Be simple with Hashem, your power, your God. What does it mean there? So Rashi tells us, Go with God, which we're translating now as being congruent in all areas of one's life. Be complete with Hashem, in the sense that our mind, our heart, our soul, our emotions, are working together. The Tzitzah continues Rashi, expect God to come through for you. Do not investigate, be anxiety-ridden about the future. Don't speculate about the future. Rather, whatever comes upon a person, Kabel Bitmimut, Accept it completely, intellectually, emotionally, physically. Then a person will be with God. And be part of God's portion. Let me explain what I think this might mean. When I get angry, what is my anger really about? Do I feel really good about myself after I'm angry? Do you know anybody who feels good about themselves after they get angry? And they had a real good shout at their spouse, their kids, whoever it was. And they, you know, they scream up, I cannot stand it when you run the family this way. I can't believe this is the way you're running the finances. Is this how you raise the children? I feel so good. I got it off my chest. I really feel so wonderful when I'm able to pour out my heart like this to you. 
How many people do you know that are really feel proud of themselves when they're angry? We don't. We really don't. Does anger really work to change the other person? <laughs> I'll ask it a little differently. Do you know anybody who successfully changed their spouse or their children through their anger? I'll make the question much easier. Do you know anybody in history that succeeded in changing their spouse or friend or child by using anger? Anger pushes away. It doesn't bring us near. Does it increase trust or do we decrease the amount of trust that we want to invest in the relationship when I have to deal with your rage or your anger? I'm going to feel unsafe to tell you about my real self because you might get upset and angry with me and I don't want to be part of that. So I'll go elsewhere to whoever, whoever will listen to me and they might have a separate agenda. So me, dad, me, mom, I have to take a sensitive role in recognizing that if I use anger frequently, I could push my child away, push my spouse away. But here's the real problem with anger. Anger is an emotion which Maimonides claims, Rambam claims, in Hilda's days, never works. He says it's a twin to gaiva, to arrogance. He says, of all the midot, of all the personality traits, these are the only two that never work. One can only go to the other extreme. All others look for a medium, the right path, the right measure in each situation. But anger never works, he says. Arrogance never works. Why not? Because anger is not reality. Anger is my way of saying, I'm not ready to discuss this problem, this difference, with you in an adult way, and so I'm going to use anger to push you off. And if you don't listen to me, I'll turn the volume up a little higher. And then I'll get you to back off. I'll use anger. It's a deliberate choice. It may not be a conscious choice. It's a, it may be a subconscious choice. I'll use my rage and anger to avoid intimacy. Because I'm not ready, as an adult, in a mature way, to talk it through. And try and get some resolution between us. But there's another reason I'll use anger. You see, if it's your fault, no, not you personally, I'm sorry. If it's, if it's your fault that this relationship is not working out, if I accuse you and blame you, deny it's my fault and give excuses why it's your fault, who has to change? Who has to change? Me? No, the person I'm upset with. See, I'll use anger as a way to avoid responsibility for changing the only person God created me to change. So when I make you the one who's deserving of blame for ruining the best years of my life. I gave you the best years of my life. I can't believe you're so good to take to me. I raised you to behave like this to me. Let me tell you something. One hour of your defiance and chutzpah is more than I've had in a lifetime to my parents. There's no one in this room can relate to this. Some of your friends know what I'm talking about. When I blame my kid for their disrespect towards me, for ruining the best years I've given to this child's life, who has to change over here in the relationship? I'm saying, for me to be happy as a parent, you, dear child, have to be more respectful of me. I'm going to use my anger to get you off my back. How does this relate to Tamimut? Because Tamimut means honesty, complete honesty. That when I'm speaking to you sincerely, honestly, about what's going on for me, now we can talk and you can feel safe. The moment I turn to anger, do I speak rationally? Or am I going to start interjecting? You're just like your father! 
You're just like your brother. And I start accusing and bring out a list of crimes you've done and may not even be directly related to the the conflict we have in this moment and suddenly it spins off in other directions and spirals and spirals downwards. The problem with anger is that it's dishonesty. Not in a deceitful way with intent to deceive but it's a way for me to avoid being honest about myself with you. Dear son, dear daughter, dear spouse, dear mother-in-law, dear father-in-law, whoever it is that I'm not b'shalom with. Anger is a way for me to get out of tamimut. Tamimut means complete honesty of all parts of me. There's another dimension here, which Rashi is intimating too, and that's the following. If being tamimutistic, the tamimut with Hashem, means that whatever happens to a person, he says, accept it completely, then I will be with Hashem, then there's another thing that's at play over here. My anger is a way to deny that God is in my life. Because when I blame you for what's going wrong, am I admitting that Hashem is behind everyone and everything in my life? Or am I creating a power out of you that kind of denies that God's involved over here? See, what my anger really is, is against God. My anger isn't against you. I'm angry with you, that's only the surface reason. My real anger is if I could have a conversation with you, God, you know what? This is not the way I want my life to go. If, give me the reins, give me the steering wheel, let me show you the direction it should go in. Let me show you what type of spouse I should really have. Let me show how my kids should be. How my boss should appreciate me. My anger towards the different people in my life and difficult people in my life, I may not want to admit it, it really is a distraction. My way of deflecting an honest relationship with my Creator. Then instead of going to my Creator, I blame people and try to change them. Instead of the only person, God made me to change myself. I'm the only one. And if I try to change you, you'll resist big time. Because my criticism of you, my anger of you, is not being honest. Honesty means, let's talk it through, let's discuss it. If I need a third party, we'll talk it through. But the moment I turn into anger, blaming, complaining, denying, excusing, accusing, we've already gone off. We're not being honest anymore. David Amalek calls his son Shlomo. Shlomo, Solomon, comes from the word Shalem. Shalom. Shalem means complete. Shalom comes from the same Lashon, Shalem. Shalom means peace. Why does peace and Shalem share the same root? There has to be a synonymous relationship. What is coming together to complete the peace? Because if Shalom comes from Shalem, then the definition of Shalom means there are parts that come together and work together to be complete. What are those parts? So we're told, right at the beginning of creation, that when God created Shemayim, says Rashi, he took two elements in creation, two opposite forces, Aish and Mayim. Two forces that we could not possibly imagine would be able to get along together. A husband and wife, a father and a contrary son, mother, contrary daughter. God takes forces, elements in creation, puts them together and creates something greater than the two parts. Shemayim. 
What's the message here? Shalom is not a term we would necessarily apply to two friends who are extremely similar and get along because there are hardly any differences. <laughs> That's not Shalom. When we talk about Shalom by it, it's because in the home, people are so different that for them to get along, that's amazing. That's Shalom. Shalom is taking opposite forces. And because we're being respectful of the differences, instead of accusative, blaming, complaining, denying, excusing, because we're trying to talk instead of shout and scream, speak it through as opposed to use disrespectful terminology, sharp words, sarcasm, which is not real. I'm not being congruent to my true self. And I feel it afterwards. I feel I've shortchanged myself when I'm not respectful, I'm not sensitive, I'm not empathetic. What we're talking about as a reality of a human being, Tamimut, being complete, means that when we are in conflict with other people who are not the same as us, spouse, children, co-worker, brother, sister, mother-in-law, father-in-law, mother, father, sibling, client, landlady, landlord, pretty much covered everybody, neighbours, community, whoever it is that I don't agree with, that I'm not the same as, that's where Shalom applies. Shalom means taking differences, and as opposed to running away, divorcing, escaping, getting away from it, making it work, without anger, without splitting, without distraction, to be wholly, completely there. Shalom means whole, W-H-O-L-E, complete. Shlomo is a very interesting name. Break his name down, it contains the word Ma. Ma means what? What am I here for? What is the purpose of my existence? The next letter, Lama, add the Lamad. Lamad gives direction. Two or four. Lama, for what? Now that I know I'm in this world, what is my direction? What are the talents that I've been gifted with that I can use for a greater purpose? And when we put those together, that's when we feel shlemut, we feel complete. But guess what happens when I'm in a career that is not making use of my real talents? What happens when I'm in a relationship where I feel like I'm constantly compromising my true self? I'm not real to myself. I don't feel shalim. I don't feel the direction I'm going in is a fulfillment of my ma, of what I am, who I am. Shlomo Melech, King Solomon, was called shalim, complete, because he was similar to the patriarch Yaakov, Tamimut, means Shalem, Gavir Ish Shalem, Kaliboy Kentiv, consistently congruent. The bottom line of this is really the following. Even if I'm sealed, I'm very far from training myself in being completely there when I'm at home with my kids or completely there when I'm at work, or completely there when I'm relaxing, taking time off for myself, completely there when I'm studying for myself, completely there when I'm learning, or davening, or making a bracha. How difficult it is. We know our very selves to say asheyatsa with sufficient focus for the 10 seconds, 15 seconds that it takes from the beginning of the bracha till the end. Even if I focused on half the bracha, I would feel it's an accomplishment. So hard are the distractions that are pouring into my mind of what's going on in my everyday life. I would say, as the bottom line, that we cannot, as an adult audience here tonight, fully appreciate the challenge our children have in this world. I would even suggest that our parents 
in their lifetime saw less and were exposed to less in terms of multicultures, values and the confusion that's out there they were exposed to less in their entire lifetime than our children are before they reach Bat and Bar Mitzvah. I would even say that within the space of maybe even a week or a month the amount that a child could be exposed to in terms of the media and all the values and opinions that are portrayed in commercials, television, news they hear more, see more even if they don't understand it they've been exposed to much more than our parents were in a whole lifetime it's difficult for us to appreciate the pizu nefesh the training of distraction I'll repeat that the training in distraction that our children are raised with and now what's become so popular as ADD, ADHD is partially because the society is helping to train us in constant distractions the commercials have to switch from one to two seconds to the next frame because my mind won't focus long enough on one item that I have to be constantly stimulated and that the challenge of the mitzvah of Tamimah to be a Tam with Hashem means to be completely focused in what I'm doing now Rav Nassim of Nemirov who was the student of Rav Nachman of Breslev was once asked what was the greatest thing your Rebbe ever did and without hesitating he responded a phenomenal line he said the greatest thing my Rebbe ever did was whatever he was doing in that moment that the power of focus if I'm with my wife with my husband that's what it is this is the time we've designated total complete focus mind body thoughts emotions if I'm on a phone call the whole concept of call waiting which is supposed to increase efficiency but when we think about it it's designing more distraction so even if you want to have call waiting maybe it's better for oneself and respectful to the person I'm on, already on the phone with to not take the call and then find out later which, who called me when I'm doing homework with my child be focused that even if they're very slow and it's taking them time my focus right now is a choice to be with my child and if my child senses that I'm really not there will they pick up on it? and if I do that a few hundred times a week two thousand times a year is it possible my child will grow up not with the emotional vocabulary to say back to dad that you weren't there for me but will sense it and then later on mature and realize you know what dad did homework with me but I never really had a consistent sense that he was there with me that mum was seriously with me when, when shopping it was more about her relationship to shopping than, and me having to be an occupational hazard of going along as opposed to me really being part of the experience where mum brought things off the shelf and shared with me look here at the price compared to here and, and made me participate that in a way that I was completely involved to me mut means to be completely involved completely focused that if my immediate environment is shul, davening it's about davening it's not about the next page it's not about when will davening finish it's about being focused in the moment putting money aside for the future paying debts down being focused in the moment as opposed to I want that now charge it because instead of me being completely focused 
on spending less than I earn, I'll repeat that, spending less than I earn and investing the difference in paying down debt faster, investing the difference in our own future, a pension plan, if I allow distractions of you've been pre-approved for 3.9% interest over and above prime rate if you apply before February 28th, you get a special rate and I start getting in distracted by, wow, I could restructure my finances, pay down debt over here. If I don't stay focused, if I have a financial plan, and I get involved in, well, you know what, actually, if I did take out that loan, I could afford the next model, or the vacation I've been promising. I'm not saying it's wrong, I'm just saying that if it's not clear to me what I should be focusing on, I can get distracted and find myself in a lot of debt over time, instead of focusing on paying less, Spending less than I earn. Eating is a great place to practice focus. The act of eating and chewing food to liquid. It's mentioned in the Kitzah Shulchanar, chapter 32, I think it's Alaka 13 or 15, around about there. Chew food to liquid. Why? Number one, increased efficiency of digestion. Number two, you end up eating one third less food. Absolutely true. And number three, increases the pleasure we have because we're eating the food for longer. We end up losing weight naturally. It's natural dieting. And the purpose of eating is to be in the moment of pleasure in order to appreciate God, you gave me this blessing of food to sustain me. And in that moment to be appeased to God for no matter what else is going on in my life with my wife, with my husband, with my children, with the boss, with the career, with the health. The power of focus in the moment is to live in the now, the only moment I ever live in. One area I want to close on in the next three short items is probably the most important part of marriage is dating after marriage. Dating before marriage is easy, even though it's hard. It's easy. But maintaining the marriage, oh, that's hard. Getting married is easy compared to maintaining a marriage. Let me ask you honestly, which is easier? Build wealth or maintain wealth? Which is easier? It's hard to get rich. But to maintain wealth, that's even harder. Which is harder? To build a shul, mazel tov. Or maintain a shul, which is harder? Bring a child into the world. Mazel tov. Not easy. But which is harder? Bring a child into the world or maintain that child? Which is easier? We know that our definition of success in life is not the glitter and glamour of a milestone. The glitter and glamour is not getting married. That's easy compared to staying married. The glitter of making money is Pale, it pales in contrast to maintaining wealth, spending less than we earn, being careful how we save. Losing weight, spectacular! <laughs> Try keep it off. That's spectacular. Our definition of success is not the milestone. That shouldn't be ignored. Maintenance is what really counts. When we get married, to maintain that respect, bring a child into the world, raise them, that's what's hard. Our definition of su success and spectacular is not the milestone alone, it's the maintenance. Rabbi Wilkenfeld, 
quoted just earlier, a Mishnah, and I was very comforted to hear that it was quoted correctly, because it's very interesting that most of the time it's not quoted correctly. There's a Mishnah, famous Mishnah, in Sanhedrin. It's in the Perak Dalad Mishnah. Kol HaMekayim Nefeshachas Bisro. Anyone who is Mekayim. Now usually, the translation, and, you, and many times it's, it's actually quoted as Kol HaMatzil, whoever saves one Jew. Kilu Mekayim Kol HaOlam Male. It's as though he saved an entire world. But the word isn't Matzil, it doesn't say save. It says Mekayim, sustain. That is our definition of success. That when we maintain tamimut, simplicity, our focus in our marriage, when we're in the marriage, dating our wives after we're married, spending time with our children, and it's time with our children, not with the email, voicemail, strawberry, raspberry, blackberry, all the different uh, fruits that we wear. When we focus in the moment, we are in the preparation and planning of maintenance. That when we are with our children during homework, with our spouse when we're with them, at the mealtime, in conversation, intimacy, whichever area it is, we are not just making an investment in the now. We are investing in the most important part of what is a Torah version of success, Kiyum. Kiyum means maintenance. And that when I'm with my spouse, but not really with them, I'm with my kid, but not really with them, they know it, I know it, I feel shortchanged, they feel shortchanged, I'm planting seeds for eroding the relationship. When we give of ourselves money, time, energy to help another Jew maintain their life, it's their physical existence, as in the case of tonight's presentation of children that until very recently did not succeed in reaching adolescence. But now with the medical breakthroughs, children with CF are able to expect to live into young adulthood and beyond. In the last 10 years, we've even had children who've gone beyond the life expectation of 18, 20 and even into the mid-20s. Tonight, we have here someone who is availing himself afterwards, if you want to speak with him, sitting next to Rabbi Wilkenfeld, who himself is a CF patient and is a living miracle of one of the few people that is a demonstration of today's breakthroughs in medical science that there's a lot of hope that when we maintain Colin Mikhayan, when we feed, maintain, especially the, the resorts that Rabbi Wolkenfeld uh, avails of young children with their entire family going to Arizona. It's one of the, the best environments for the warm air to reach the lungs and give them the strength to get through the rest of the winter when they come back to an environment such as New York. I, I invite you to ask any questions you want of the gentleman sitting next to Rabbi Wolkenfeld. The message of tonight essentially is the following. Being a tum is more than simple. It's a science. It's a science of focus. And even if I haven't been completely focused till now, I can make a new choice in every moment because that's the real definition of a human being. Not the choice I made yesterday. The new choice I make today to be more sensitive, more listening, more empathetic, more giving, more understanding, more appreciative, more grateful. The choice I make every day in every encounter with my children, with my spouse, with my mother-in-law, my father-in-law, my brother-in-law, 
my siblings, my boss, my client, my co-workers, whoever I'm involved in in my life that's not easy to get along with and very often different in sharp contrast to my personality. When we control our anger and we invest in being our real selves, giving ourselves time off and giving ourselves that time that I don't accept other distractions, turn off all the technology and relax. Go to sleep at night and focus on now's time for my mind to shut off, not to worry, not to be filled with the anxieties of tomorrow and yesterday. Tomorrow doesn't exist, yesterday doesn't exist. It's history and the future. The only moment I exist in is the now. When we invest in that now, we are investing in Qiyum. Qiyum is our ultimate success. And I invite you to share in tonight's cause to give generously from your hearts in, uh, to the program that Rabbi Wilkenfeld presented with us. Thank you for your patience.